Welcome, listeners, to the NK News podcast, recorded here in Seoul on May 15, 2018. I am your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and this week I'm joined in the studio by veteran journalist Anna Fifield, currently the Tokyo Bureau Chief for the Washington Post. We'll be talking about all sorts of reporting on North Korea for over a decade, interviewing North Korean defectors, inter-Korean summits, and mannels. You can download or subscribe to our podcast not only at iTunes, but also Stitcher, SoundCloud, YouTube, and other podcast platforms. And once again, NK News is offering a free year's subscription to one reviewer who reviews our podcast, not only at iTunes, but also the other platforms. And you can save $50 off your NK News subscription by using the code podcast at the checkout. Don't forget, if you enjoy the podcast, please share it with others so that our listenership will grow. Now, our very special guest today is Anna Fifield. She's originally from New Zealand and started out as a journalist for the London headquartered Financial Times, but now writes for the Washington Post from her base in Tokyo, where she is bureau chief. She has reported on Korea since 2004 when she lived in Seoul for four years and has broken heaps of important stories. Welcome, Anna, and thanks for being here today. How did you uh, first get into journalism? I think I had always wanted to be a journalist. There was never anything else that I could or wanted to do. So even at high school in New Zealand, I was writing for my school paper and then the same thing at university. And after university, I did a graduate, a postgraduate diploma in journalism at Canterbury University in New Zealand. I got my first break there, starting on a small provincial newspaper in New Zealand. And I spent uh, three years there. So it's, it's something that I've always felt is what I... The only thing that I can do is be a journalist. There's nothing else I know how to do other than this. And how did you end up coming to Korea? Were you sent here or did you choose? I was sent here. Uh, I had been working for the Financial Times for four years in London, and I'd done a brief stint in Sydney filling in for the correspondent there while she was on maternity leave. And I had always wanted to be not just a journalist, but a foreign correspondent. So I knew that this was my big break. So for six months in Australia, I you know worked like crazy writing all across the paper, you know, business stories, political stories, fun stories, the whole shebang. And my timing was really like fortuitous because at that time, uh, the Financial Times was setting up an Asia edition. And soon after I returned to London, they needed a new correspondent in Korea, someone, you know, with lots of energy to cover all of the stories in Korea and who was able to cover, you know, a versatile reporter who was able to cover a range of stories. And um, luckily for me, they asked me if I would like to go. So I got on a plane and 2004, uh, never having eaten kimchi, not even being able to say annyeonghaseyo. I think I learned it on the plane, uh, but I was off and I never really looked back. Do you feel, well, how was your time here in Seoul, your four years initially? Oh, I absolutely loved it. It was uh, such an exciting story to cover, you know, so much in South Korea, so much in North Korea. I had unusual good luck in getting into North Korea at that time. Mm. So I went in five times during that four years. But I also just felt like I clicked with Korea and Koreans. I loved living here and, you know, working here, socializing here, the whole thing. So it it was the start of what has now become a lifelong obsession. So what, if anything, has changed for you personally in covering the Korean Peninsula? Yeah, I mean, the thing that strikes me is like South Korea has changed and that it's, it's always been relatively easy for foreign journalists, I think, to get access to government officials and things like for big name, uh, you know, media organizations. I think Koreans are respond well to that. So that has been 
good. Um, I mean, the thing that's changed is that that has become easier and better, I think. Also, you know, things like cacao talk didn't exist when I was here the first time. <laughs> that is kind of transformational in terms of getting information from the government, in terms of keeping in touch with defectors and other people I talk to. You know, fundamentally, I'm still this kind of dinosaur print reporter who, you know, goes out with my notebook and, um, you know, reports stories in the same way. So the basics of that have not changed. Now, you mentioned that just then that uh, it's relatively easy for big name foreign uh, media outlets to get access to Korean politicians. That reminded me that about a month ago, I saw you on Korean television asking President Moon, I think it was just in the lead up to the uh, inter-Korean summit, and you were asking President Moon to what extent he thought President Trump was uh, to be thanked for all of this or responsible for all of this. I think he handled that quite well. Yeah, I mean, so this is the uh, New Year's uh, press conference that President Moon did in January. So this was not anything to do with, you know, being from a big media organization or anything. This was a very democratic press conference. Mm -hmm. Uh, I just happened to be sitting in the front row and to hold my hand up for half the time. So he called on me. Uh, Yeah, at the time, I thought that that was going to be a tough question because President Trump had just tweeted saying, you know, it's because I'm strong uh, on North Korea that this has all happened. And so I put that to President Moon and I thought that he would say something like about the strength of the alliance or so cooperating, some kind of thing. But in fact, this question was a gift for President Moon. Mm -hmm. It's almost like he wanted somebody to ask her, right? Like he wanted to be able to give President Trump credit for bringing about this uh, environment, just like President Trump had said. Right. And that's a consistent line that the South Korean government's been following since then, isn't it? They've really been uh, drumming Mm. in this message. You know, it's music to President Trump's ears. He can't hear this often enough. But Korea is not the only country that does this. Like Japan has tried to do it. Everybody's out there trying to flatter (laughs) President uh, Trump in different ways because they know that he responds to that. Like even China did it during President Trump's visit at the end of last year in terms of giving him the, you know, the royal welcome there. Right. Now, I want to talk about reporting on North Korea. What are some of the more common pitfalls and traps that Western journalists fall into when writing about that country? I think there's a real tendency to kind of reduce North Korea to caricature, and especially when we look at the treatment of Kim Jong-un and the leadership in general, there is this broad tendency to kind of laugh at them, to treat Kim Jong-un like he's a cartoon character, a guy with a funny haircut Mm. who just happens to have nuclear weapons. And I think... That is really underestimating him, underestimating his capabilities and, you know, doesn't do anybody any favors because while he certainly is not a good guy, he is not a crazy, irrational madman. Like He has been very calculating in what he has done in the six and a half years that he's been the leader of North Korea. He's defied all of the predictions that he wouldn't be able to hang on to power and he's done that in often very brutal ways. But so I think like reducing North Korea to this joke um, is is something I see a lot, which I really mm. object to. That's not just in journalism as well. You see politicians, John McCain and Nikki Haley and things have all made remarks like this. President Trump calls him little rocket man. Mm-hmm. You know, there is this tendency to joke about, uh, about the leadership and also to conflate the people with the regime as mm. if it's this monolithic entity, whereas, you know, it is anything but. The people of North Korea are not, you know, brainwashed robots. They do have, you know, can think for themselves, but they're maybe not allowed to think out loud. 
allowed, but they are, you know, they do object to the regime or would like to things to change. So I think we need to f- focus on the fact that there are 25 million people who live in North Korea who have no choice if they want to survive but to play along with this regime. That's true. Although, I mean, I suppose the, the regime and, and the people who we meet when we go there, so tour guides, minders, interpreters, they don't really help themselves by, by pushing this line of Ilshim Dangil, right? The single-minded unity and yeah. saying, and, and sort of trying to put out the image that they're a monolith when, of course, they're not. I mean, no country of 25 billion people can be. Right, but those people that you see when you go on a media trip to Pyongyang, they are all part of the regime. Like they are the people who have a vested interest in this system staying together. Yeah. I, mean, I differentiate between them uh, and the people who live in Hamgyongbukdo who are like you know struggling to keep afloat. So, what's the best way? Or what's important for foreign journalists to do to avoid falling into those traps of uh, caricaturizing uh, the leadership and also conflating the country with the people? Yeah, I mean, through my reporting, I've tried really hard to humanize North Koreans and to show that North Koreans, you know, it shouldn't be a shock, but North Koreans are people too, mm. uh, because there is this tendency to conflate them. And I've seen this with some of the reader feedback I get when I write about North Koreans. I get emails, you know, usually anonymous from people saying, let's go bomb them all right now and this kind of stuff, you know, which obviously <laughs> makes me screw my face up or mm. tear my hair out. I think, you know, in terms of my my reporting and how I approach North Korea, I try to get as many sources and as many perspectives as possible on that. So if I'm writing about something inside North Korea, you know, of course, it's helpful to be able to go and to see things for yourself, but up to a certain limit. You know, when I've been to North Korea, I've known that I'm not seeing the real North Korea. I'm seeing what the regime wants me to see. Um, But I do talk to defectors uh, outside North Korea, you know, people who may still be living in China, people in Thailand, many people in South Korea I've interviewed over the years. But then also like aid workers or people who can go back and forth Mm. into North Korea, people who can travel more freely than I do. Uh, It's this kind of jigsaw puzzle that you have to put together to be able to talk to as many people as possible and try to figure out what is actually going on in North Korea. When you're writing other journalists' work on North Korea, um, how quickly can you tell, like, how many lines or paragraphs can you tell they're on the right track or not, they've got no idea? And what's what's a sign for you, like maybe a word or a phrase or just an idea or a trope that says that they're way off the garden path? Well, I mean, the phrase that many, of, you know, we journalists uh, laugh about is the raglan. Ah, yeah. You know, we, we on this podcast have mocked that one before. Yeah, which is just like, this is a trap. And I see, you know, people fall into it. They're like, wow, we're going to North Korea. No one's ever done this before. And in fact, you know, and they're, trumpeting they want to be able to crow about mm. the fact that they're in North Korea when really they're just doing the kind of tourist haunts that everybody does mm. most of the time they're not getting anything like a rare glimpse in fact you know just this week I had a publisher contact me uh, offering a book that she said was like unprecedented access insights into North Korea and it turned out it was a student who'd been on a three week long language course there which you know is not nothing but I would not say it's you know unprecedented no. access worth writing an entire book about 
about. So there is a lot of hyping about seeing stuff that is not that interesting and uh, you know or has seen been seen many times before. I guess when I see cliches about North Korea, like I don't like Hermit Kingdom mm. being used. I think North Korea has become more and more open and more and more porous, and I think Hermit Kingdom does not really apply so much anymore. I also think Stalinist mm. is not a particularly accurate word to describe North Korea. I don't use that myself. Um, so it's just the phrases like this that I think have become old hackneyed kind of tropes, but without people um, thinking about does that really apply anymore. So when I see phrases like that that jump mm. out at me, I'm like, oh, that's just lazy. Well, tell us about your own first trip to North Korea. When was it and how did that come about? Yeah, it was the summer of 2005. I had been in uh, South Korea for a year working for the Financial Times and I'd been into the North Korean embassy in London mm. and talked to them there and asked. And to my great surprise, I was given a visa not for the usual four days, but for two weeks. And I'd requested to go in on the train. Uh, so I went, it was supposed to take 24 hours and in fact took almost 40 to go from Beijing to Pyongyang. Actually, once we crossed into North Korea, you know, over in Shiniju area, there were like women and children walking alongside the tracks who were going faster than the train. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that was my introduction, you know, backwards in time into North Korea. But that was a really fascinating trip. Mm. Uh, I and mean, two weeks is quite long. Yeah, two weeks is long. Did you feel sick of it at the end? Did you like glad to get out? No, because everything was new. And, uh, you know, it was my first trip. Everything was exciting. And of course, I did all of the the things that I have done, you know, multiple times since, like going to uh, Mangyongde mm. and uh, Mansude and all of these. Juche Tower. Juche Tower, can't get enough of it. Yes, Pueblo on that first trip as well, like all of those kind of places. But because we had so much time to fill, I did get to do some fun stuff too. So we went up to Myohyangsan on a public holiday mm. when there were lots of Koreans out there also having picnics. I had a picnic with my uh, minder and the guide and we just – was sat there on this path and watched people walking past and things, which, you know, maybe it's not some bolt for, of, you know, epiphany on North Korea, but just to be able to sit there and to see ordinary people going about their daily lives and just to be able to soak it up a bit, I think, you know, I've never had that since. And especially because I was by myself with a guide assigned from the foreign ministry, I had a lot of freedom, really flexibility. I could ask a question and say, how about, you know, can I interview an economics professor at Kim Il-sung University. Because it was just me and because we had enough time, uh, they were able to arrange things like that, which was really useful for me. And when I look at that, you know, the professor said the kind of things you expect to, but I got to go into Kim Il-sung University. I yeah. saw they had to turn on the elevator for me to go up wow. because it, everybody else was like walking up 20 flights of stairs to get to the classroom. So just little things yeah. like that. It's like they can't turn on the elevators. All wow. of this stuff I just found fascinating at the time. And it's kind of been steadily downhill since then because I've been on a bunch of other media trips. And, you know, when there's 60 journalists traveling in convoy, you know, you cannot do anything outside the schedule. And of course, you don't get told the itinerary. Mm. You're just told no. to hop on the bus. Kind of done with that. I was sure. not getting any news out of no. visiting this fake house anymore. But you don't get any choice, do you? I mean, everyone, you don't get any yeah. choice. You cannot opt out of going to Camille Song's birthplace. How many times have you been to North Korea overall over the years now? So it's seven times to Pyongyang, uh, most recently in 2016 when I went to the Workers' Party Congress there. Uh, and then, you know, back in the 
previous Sunshine era, Sunshine 1.0. Mm. I went to Kaesong three times, I think, and Kumgangsan uh, two or three times. So, you know, purists don't count that as going to North Korea. But so I would say seven to Pyongyang and, and around there. So what's changed, in, at least as far as you could see, in North Korean society since your first trip? Oh, my goodness, it's changed so much. Uh, my last trip when I was here for the FT was in uh, 2008 when I went in with the New York Philharmonic. And then I, so I was away for six and a half years. I didn't go back till 2014 in the summer. And I had been keeping up with North Korea over the years and I'd been looking at all the photos on Instagram and things. So I knew that there was a lot of construction and stuff, but I had no idea of the extent of it. So when I went back in 2014, I was kind of blown away by the scale of the construction. It wasn't just one or two buildings here or there. It was like every block, it seemed, in the middle of the city had uh, you know, some kind of construction project going on. And in the past, where I'd been used to seeing, you know, soldiers in their khakis doing all the labor. I mean, there were still soldiers who were laboring, but it wasn't all by hand. They actually had heavy equipment this time, you know, the kind of stuff that they'd never had before. And there was just a more kind of relaxed air in the capital. It felt it felt like life had gotten easier mm. if you were the 1% living in Pyongyang. Mm. It was more leisurely, you know, there's the famous rollerblading rinks on the Taedonggang banks and the, this kind of um, obvious sign of Kim Jong-un trying to invigorate the youth mm. and things. So, But that kind of stuff, it did have a palpable kind of effect that it just felt like the people of Pyongyang that were enjoying a slightly easier life than, than previously. And people using cell phones to film stuff too, right? That was yeah, probably not right. there when you were back there in 2008. No, it was not. I mean, North Koreans had their Arirang smartphones out filming everything and taking selfies and all that kind of stuff. But also I had a working cell phone on these two trips, you know, which I had never had before. So just the ability to be able to tweet and put right. pictures on Instagram from North Korea was, and to geolocate in North Korea. Wow. Mm. So that was a big change. Of course, you can't call, as a foreigner, we can't call North Koreans on their cell phones, right? They've got that, right, that, they're that on, uh, quarantine network. Exactly. They're on their internal network. And yeah. so as a foreigner, I had a special foreigner's SIM card for my phone, which I, I wasn't using as a phone. I was just using it for the, uh, uh, you know, data. For the data. Yeah. So while a, a Neiman fellow in journalism at Harvard University, you looked at a change in, a, in closed societies. Um, is North Korea the most successfully closed society in the world today, even though it's not a hermit kingdom? Does it keep itself reasonably pure from outside elements the way they want to be? Hands down, it is the most closed society on this planet. Over the years, I've reported from Libya when Gaddafi was still in power. You know, after my first stint in Korea, I went to Syria. I was reporting from Iran during the Ahmadinejad years. Mm. All these other countries that we think of kind of in the same boat as North Korea. But they are, you know, so relatively free and open mm. compared to North Korea. These places, of course, they are not free and open, but compared to North Korea, it feels that way because, you know, there are people who can express dissent. There is yep. graffiti. There is an underground press. Mm. Or there are bloggers. There are people, you know, on Twitter and things who are able to, to criticize the regime. This is unimaginable in North Korea. You know? What makes North Korea's leadership so successful in this regard? Because they've just cut it off entirely. 
entirely. There is no access to information, no sanctioned access to information. You know, there is no internet. The people on the border who have Chinese cell phones are at constant risk of having them, Mm. you know, detected and and taken. Um, So partly it is the fact that they have been able to isolate their people to, you know, to an extent that we have not seen anywhere else. But also, you know, when I've talked to North Korean defectors about this, it is the punishment for transgressing these Mm. rules is still so severe. Um, And so if you, you know, cross any of these lines, if you express dissent or something, it's not just you who gets in trouble, but three generations of your family, right? So no other country acts in the same way to, to make the punishment so severe that you're risking your grandma or something like that. So it is interesting that even though in the worst times of the Soviet Union when they were sending people to gulags, there were still people out there who were dissidents and they were writing things and passing around these Samizdat copies of, of literature and things. And we still don't know of any dissidents in North Korea writing uh, things. Well, there was that book that Bundy, was published. Bundy, yeah. right, which there's still some uncertainty in the academic community. Is he really a North Korean? Is he not? Is he just copying that style? Hard to, to go back and prove these things. But mm. even if he is, he's only one, right? right? And that's in 70 years. It's North Korea is incredibly successful in, in, in stamping down any uh, any local uh, dissent, right? We don't know the names of anybody, any, any real names at least. Right. Yeah. I mean, the Bandi, the accusation, I thought that was an amazing book. But yeah, I'm not... I don't. I don't know. I'm not convinced that it's real. The story is just too perfect. Mm. I think uh, the story of its provenance is too perfect. But as like literature, I thought it was it was beautiful. In terms of like North Korea dissent and dissidents there. Yeah, we don't know of anybody. When, I, when I've asked um, North Korean defectors, mm. I've said, you know, you have watched all these South Korean movies. You've, right. you know, heard all this stuff. You've talked to people outside on your cell phones or whatever. Why is there no change? And, you know, almost every single person has said it is just too dangerous. Like mm. if you if you object to the system, you try to leave. You don't try to change right. it. And I think that equation still remains the same today. So is change possible in North Korea? And if so, how much of it? And how is it possible? Yeah, I think North Korea has changed enormously. Uh, and the most striking change to me is the emergence of the Jangmadang. You know, that is the single biggest thing that has changed in North Korea over this time. Obviously, markets emerged during the famine when the uh, regime had no choice but to tolerate them because they just could not feed people themselves. And this kind of entrepreneurial activity began to emerge. But it's really taken off under Kim Jong-un, like every town and city has a thriving market now uh, you know you you can buy anything you want you know the old saying during the famine what used to be you know you can buy anything in the market except cat's horns uh-huh. right so now maybe you know I wouldn't be surprised if there's some market somewhere where you can buy cat's horns at least something labeled a cat's horn yeah <laughs> yeah that's right so this I think is a really powerful force for change because it is enabling North Koreans to fend for themselves, you know, to earn their own money. It's, uh, you know, there's this private economy that's sprung up. It's loosening their dependence on the regime and it's loosening the regime's, one of the levers of control that they have Mm -hmm. over people. Obviously, all of this is done with the tacit approval or tolerance of the state. You know, nothing gets done without that. But the, the fact that these markets exist, that's such a high proportion of North Koreans earn their living through mm-hmm. these markets now is a really big uh, change in North Korea. And I think, you know, that genie can't be put it back in the bottle. That This is a trend that is going to continue. Do you think for the North Korean state that that's 
kind of a safe form of change because it's really only touching the economic side of life rather than social, political, ideological or cultural? Yes, exactly. I think it's a, like it's a, a safety valve, like a pressure release mm. valve and that it's helping people let off steam or like it's reducing the pressure on the state to yep. provide. So this is something that they needed to do during the famine and which they, I think, choose to do now. Of course, it's not a straight line. Things go back and forth. Mm. But, but generally, this trend has been yeah, towards this greater uh, private economy. And like, you can see the way that the black market exchange rate has now become kind of standard. Even when I've been in the Kwangbok department store in Pyongyang, they use the 8,000 won yeah. to the dollar. They don't use the official rate anymore. Mm. So it's had big changes across society. And, and when I've talked to officials, uh, officials who are still serving and, you know, still they have, they're not defectors, they're people working for the North Korean regime. You know, the number of people who've said to me that they want their children to be a businessman or to be an entrepreneur, like before the status was party membership, right? Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. wanted your child to become a member of the Workers' Party. Yes. Now they want them to be a capitalist. They want them to be in business and to be making money. So this, like the, the elites know that this is the future as well. Do you ever make any jokes about that? Like, oh, Mr. Kim, you sound like a capitalist or... Yeah, of course. And, <laughs> and they laugh. I mean, they know that I'm kind of winding them up. Sure, and they, yeah. they know the irony of it. Mm. And, you know, that kind of conversation happens over lunch or whatever. It doesn't happen in an interview. No, no, yeah. Now, in, in early 2016, you interviewed the sister of Kim Jong-un's late mother and her husband, who now live in the United States. Uh, that was quite a scoop. So well done there. Thank you. Was there anything new that you were able to learn from that interview about Kim Jong-un or North Korea that you hadn't learned before? Yeah, well, at that time, uh, you know, there was so little that was known about Kim Jong-un. Mm. I mean, and so few people who had ever met him. Uh, obviously, that's changed a lot in the last couple of months where so many people have yep. met him. But yep. about his earlier life, we had very, very little information. We had the Japanese sushi chef right. and the four friends who went to school with him in Switzerland, but there was very little other information. So what I learned from his aunt, you know, maybe it wasn't some huge headline-grabbing information, but I learned, for example, that his real birth date was 1984. Mm. And until that time, people had said it, maybe it was 82, 83, 84. It wasn't clear. But she told me that she absolutely knew that it was 1984 because she had her own son at that time and he was one month old when Kim Jong-un was born and that she changed both of their nappies, diapers together. Yes, so right. she knew for a bit. So for me, that was, you know, very interesting. It enabled me to give his age exactly from then on in my reporting. But just to hear her talk about what Kim Jong-un was like as a child, and mm. uh, he, frankly, he like sta- sounded like a spoiled brat, mm-hmm. but just your kind of garden variety spoiled brat. He had a privileged upbringing. He thought he was, you know, the center of the universe. Yep. He did. He turned out to be the center of the North <laughs> Korean universe. <laughs> so yeah, maybe he was spoiled and things, but he wasn't a psychopath. Nobody I've talked to have mm. said about he was torturing kittens or anything like like that as a as a child. So just to be able to get these insights into the fact that he did have a relatively normal childhood and, and as far as he could in North Korea but certainly in Switzerland he mm. was just another kid going to school there I think you know learning about that normalcy of his life and his aunt told me about having playdates and playing with Lego and birthday parties and just very ordinary kind of childhood stuff probably you know made me think at the time that it proved to Kim Jong-un that 
outside of North Korea, he would just be another normal person. The only place in the world where he is special is North Korea. So if anything would have uh, cemented in his mind the need to remain in North Korea, I think, you know, that was probably quite foundational. But also just hearing her, she showed me photos of Kim Jong-un on the French Riviera and skiing and the Swiss Alps and things. So he had all of these privileged experiences as a child. And now when you look at North Korea and you see pizza restaurants and the Mashakyong ski Ski field, you're like, oh, yes, this is what he learned about during his teenage years in Switzerland. But altogether, that's only about four years living in Switzerland. So when when some media outlets call him Swiss educated or Western educated, is it a stretch or is is it fair? I mean, it's fair. He was educated in Switzerland for four years. I mean, we're not saying he spent his entire education there. He was there from the age of 12 to about 16 or 17. Mm. Those are quite formative years. You know, we can say that that would have had some impact on him. How much, we don't know. And, I mean, certainly he didn't go back to Mm. North Korea and say we should open this place up like Switzerland. You were in Korea in 2007 during the previous inter-Korean summit. What did you make of that summit and its aftermath and follow-up? It was a very different atmosphere that that summit happened in. You know, we had had what, four years of sunshine policy under No Muhyan mm-hmm. coming straight after Kim Dae-jung. And also that was a time of denuclearization already. You know, the 2005 nuclear agreement had been struck. It was still ongoing at that time. In fact, I remember that we flew back from Beijing from six-party talks to right. go straight into that summit at that time. Oh. So so it wasn't out of step with the external environment back then. It certainly feels a lot more mem- this time. And a big part of that is because Kim Jong-un is doing things differently. Like, look at him stepping across that concrete border Mm. and into South Korea. He has made, you know, a number of gestures which may seem trivial, but I think are quite momentous, the fact that he was prepared to cross into South Korean soil and for so long and to, you know, be so jolly about it the whole Mm. time. I look at it really not in comparison with the 2007 into Korean summit but with last year you know a year yeah. ago I was writing about missiles flying over Japan yes I was, I was in Tokyo when one <laughs> flew over yeah. right right and so we were you know the drumbeat for war was starting you know it wasn't long before we were hearing about bloody strikes bloody, bloody, bloody noses and this thing yeah exactly so I look at the turnaround from last year rather than from 2007 and that's what makes this moment so astonishing do you, so do you feel generally more hopeful about this period of rapprochement than the sunshine policy period? Oh, it's really never a good idea to be too hopeful about North Korea. They do have a special (laughs) ability to um, not make good on their promises. But I do feel like this time, it does feel different to me. In many ways, Kim Jong-un is borrowing from his father's playbook Mm. uh, in the way that he is approaching this and the way he expects to be rewarded for taking these steps. But in many ways, he, he feels entirely different, like the fact that he did cross into South Korea, the fact that he did announce at that Workers' Party meeting that he was going to cease missile and nuclear tests kind of as a unilateral move Mm -hmm. before he needed to. He got nothing immediately. He got nothing back for that. So it feels like he is bolder and more willing to be personally associated with this effort. He's he's risking his own legitimacy on this, I think, in a way that that we hadn't seen before. He seems to be all in. Like, do I think he's going to give up his 
those nuclear weapons? Absolutely not. <laughs> I think he, he didn't try this hard and spend so much money on this program just to suddenly give it up. And I think he probably still thinks he needs it for uh, his own security. But maybe he'll give up a few missiles. Maybe he'll give up a few, you know, warheads and something mm-hmm. and, uh, as a gesture. You know, maybe we'll get to a freeze. I think a freeze is still a lot better than where we were last year. And the direction that we're heading in is much preferable to the talk of, you know, military strikes of last year. Now, last year, uh, American student Otto Warmbier was returned to America after almost 18 months in North Korea in one of their prisons, and he tragically died shortly thereafter. Now, you covered this story. Uh, What do you think actually happened to him in North Korea that caused him to fall into a vegetative state and eventually died? Do we know anything, any... Yeah, given that there was yeah. no autopsy, it's hard to, to really say, isn't it? Yeah, we don't know. We don't know. Uh, we'll probably never know unless one of those guards and the security services defects one day and tells us, I think. You know, there's a big question mark over this. His uh, family are adamant that he was tortured. Yeah, his family are were adamant that he was tortured. Uh, there are conflicting reports on that. Some people, you know, in the know have said that he wasn't. Others I've talked to have said that he was beaten. We, we just don't know. We, we know that, you know, something went terribly wrong mm-hmm. uh, very shortly after he was sentenced to 15 years in hard labor. And it really looks like, you know, the North Koreans panicked that this had happened and tried to cover it up. Uh, maybe they had hoped that he would recover, that he would wake up from this coma. And then maybe, you know, it carried on for so long that Mm. they couldn't then admit what had happened and that he'd been, you know, in a coma for months on end. So North Korea has over the past, you know, 15 years or so has detained Americans uh, on a fairly regular basis for very trivial, you know, offenses that, you know, that would not be a crime anywhere else in the world. And they've held on to them until it was opportune for them to, to give them back until some, you know, high profile figure like Bill Clinton or Jimmy mm-hmm. Carter came to get them out and gave them a proper candor victory. And so the latest three Americans who were released, I think very much much fits that pattern. They've been used for political purposes, in this case, as a gesture of goodwill towards uh, President Trump uh, ahead of the summit. And so that fits much more with the pattern that we had seen there, which does feed into the theory that what happened to Otto Warmbier was a, an, a terrible accident. Now, can we talk for a minute about Manos? Please, let's talk about Manals. You've been to lots of conferences and seminars on North Korea over the last 14 years, and you usually see male speakers. So last October, you tweeted, Bored of going to Manals, we made this list of 80 women experts on Japan slash Korea. Help yourself. And then you gave a link and then hashtag women also know stuff. Do you feel that your tweet and your list has had any positive impact? Yeah, I do. I mean, do I expect a couple of tweets to overturn, you know, decades of entrenched patriarchy? in Korea? No, of course not. This is like going, it's a process. And the idea behind this list was to start the process and to make it as easy as possible for for panel organizers and journalists to find female experts. And I was uh, kind of motivated to start this list. Partly there's a similar list in China, which Mm. has like 400 and something, maybe more 500 names on it. But because I, you know, I go to lots of conferences on uh, Korea or Japan and panels, you know, I see so many of these manals all male panels and it drives me crazy because I know very many smart articulate women who could you know make a very valuable contribution to this discussion and they're just simply being overlooked Mm. because of this kind of uh, tendency preference for men particularly in Korea a 
tendency towards you know men with a certain status mm-hmm. you know career love status and so it does tend to be men who have that so I wanted to start this list to make it easy to find qualified people uh, qualified women to appear on these panels and I think I mean I have seen some progress mm. uh, you know a few years ago when I would go to CSIS in Washington DC you would see manals all the time and I, of course I would tweet out little photos of little snarky remarks and now you know CSIS proudly says that they do not have manals on Korea so there is some change um, there is a long way to go I was just at the Asan forum there mm. were like nine women out of 95 speakers and a real preponderance of women moderators mm. women were there to facilitate rather than there as experts so that needs to change and in particular like absolute lack absence of Korean women mm. when I know that there are lots of Korean women who you know speak English very well and are able to be there it's just there's a lack of will on that front so I hope with this you know we will start the process here are the contact details for these women and you know I, I quote a lot of women I make a real effort in my stories to do that not as tokens you know they're not token women they are people who served in administrations people with PhDs people who have real experience people who have negotiated with North Koreans they are every bit as qualified as men and so I think we should be hearing from them partly because it's just more interesting you know when I go to these panels I don't need to see these old guys who've been saying the same things for 30 years you know I want to hear fresh ideas and new approaches and an array of voices so in my reporting I make an effort not just to include women Mm. but also to make sure I have balance between Koreans and non-Koreans to have balance between English speaking Koreans and more domestically focused Koreans and things so that you know you get a diversity of opinion and it always leads to a more interesting discussion. On that note I'm very keen to get uh, Kang Kyung-hwa and uh, Kim Yo-jong on this podcast so if (laughs) if you have uh, any uh, channels through which you can uh, assist me to uh, broker uh, an interview. Well if you get Kim Yo-jong can I come along? Oh absolutely. (laughs) Okay deal. (laughs) I want to turn now to a recent magnum opus of yours. On November 17th last year, the Washington Post released a report by you entitled Life Under Kim Jong-un in both English and Korean. To prepare this report, you engaged in six months of interviews in South Korea and Thailand, talking with more than 25 North Koreans from different walks of life who lived in Kim Jong-un's North Korea and managed to escape from it. First of all, what an incredible undertaking. So well done. Thank you. Congratulations on that, which was picked up widely by media in the US and in South Korea. How hard was it to find people? people who are willing to speak to you, both here and in Thailand? Oh, it was incredibly difficult. I mean, when we talk about the changes that have happened over the years of covering Korea, this is one of the biggest and, you know, most disturbing changes. And mm. when I was here the first time around, you know, it wasn't uncommon for defectors to ask to be paid for interviews. But when you explained why you could not pay, they would be like, oh, okay, and most of them would agree to talk anyway. Now it has become this real industry mm. and where it's very commonplace, for defectors to earn large sums of money for interviews. And of course, I understand that North Koreans, many of them come here with very few marketable skills. And, you know, their one unique selling point is being a North Korean defector. So, of course, I understand that they want to try and turn that into income. Yeah. But... 
you know, we cannot pay uh, and will not pay for any interviews, not with just with North Koreans, but with anybody yeah. in, in our work. And also, you know, we don't want to be involved in this kind of um, ten, uh, trend towards creating a market for more and more sensational stories about North Korea. So which is a long way of answering your question to say it was made all the more difficult to find these defectors because I also had to, I not only had to find defectors who had left in the last few years, right. I, I wanted people who had lived under Kim Jong-un's reign. Yep. And so I tried to get people who had defected after 2013, but so also people who were willing to talk to me without getting paid for it. And, you know, I took up a lot of their time. You know, many of these people we saw three or four times wow. to go over their stories and things. So um, it was a big investment in time on the behalf of those people. But I really kind of appealed to them to say, you know, what my motivations were, which is to be able to open outsiders' eyes to the realities of life in North Korea now and then. So I think the people who agreed to talk to me were people who sh shared that goal of wanting to help illuminate to readers what life is like for ordinary North Koreans. How do you situate defector accounts and how do you evaluate what's reliable and what's not? Yeah, this is a constant struggle and problem um, and something I think about a lot. So, I mean, one way that, you know, not paying defectors for one, mm. you know, sharply curtails the incentive for them to exaggerate or to make things up because what's in it for them? Right. Uh, so that gives me some kind of solace there. Also, I am always very careful. You know, I want to know about that person's direct experiences, what life was like for them, like how much money did they earn? You know, where did they live? What was their house like? How did they go to the, uh, you know, how often did they go to the markets and, mm. and this kind of stuff. So stuff that I know that they are qualified to talk about, you know, their lives. So you know, sometimes I see, you know, this is a slight exaggeration, but only slight. You know, you'll see reporters going and ask a farmer from, you know, Tongjin or like somewhere, um, somewhere, you know, go and ask somebody about the nuclear program. Yeah. Yeah. That guy, he does not know where the warheads are kept. You know, asking these kind of questions is ridiculous and mm -hmm. will only lead to kind of wrong answers if, if the person feels compelled to answer. Right. So so I, um, I try to just stick with what they know. Also, a lot of it is kind of my own knowledge built up over the years of what rings true, uh, what is, sounds right and feels right. Barbara Demick has a great story about uh, she was told one day that uh, a person was burned at the stake mm. in North Korea. That's how they were executed. And she immediately thought, you know, that's ridiculous. Firewood is a very precious commodity uh. in North Korea. You know, people hike for hours into the mountains so they can cook. They would not waste wood on burning a body. You know, this is the kind of like gut check thing. It's like, that does not sound right to me. Right. Uh, and I mean, recently I had uh, interviews with a woman who told me she'd spent her entire life in a Kualiso concentration camp mm -hmm. and I had no reason to disbelieve her but her story did not quite ring true there were a lot of inconsistencies and I mean one of the good things about the proliferation of these interviews is that we could go and see her appearance on Imangap and see the story that she had told at that time and mm. see all of the differences in her story oh. uh, and then you know I don't I didn't confront her but I asked her to explain the differences and she couldn't mm. so and that kind of situation you know I, I think 
parts of her story were true, but I also think parts of it were not true. So in a situation like that, I'd interviewed her three times, I'd taken photos. I chose not to write the story because I just could not tell what was true and what was not. And, uh, you know, so the the safest thing to do is to not write the story. Could you share with us, well, one story that really made an impact on you from that uh, project? Yeah, I think uh, not just from this project, but from talking to North Koreans over the years, uh, you know, and other stories I had reported from Thailand and Laos in the last couple of years. The thing that really kind of gets to me, uh, you know, many much of it gets to me, but the thing that I just kind of can't fathom is, uh, you know, I am a mother and I talk to so many women who have left their children behind, either in North Korea or in China with their Chinese fathers. And I just think, wow, that must be the hardest decision mm. in the world to make. I cannot begin to imagine how bad your life would be, must be if the better option is like to go, yeah. to leave your child behind. And, you know, many of them do it with the intent to be able to bring their child out, you know, to earn money, to get their child out and things. And many of them do do that. But just to be separated from your child for so long and not knowing when you'd see them again, you know, just um, I don't know how many North Koreans I've talked to over the years, maybe hundreds. Mm-hmm. And it never gets any easier, you know, the, hearing these stories of, you know, of what these people have been through and how barbaric the regime is to do this kind of stuff to them. Um is just, yeah, it gets me every time. And there was one uh, teenager I spoke to for the project who her, her mother had defected and without, you know, she didn't know and she was hauled out by the police. She was 16 years old and put into a detention facility and, she, you know, she was put in stress positions, you know, torture positions for long periods of time. She still suffered, you know, now to this day, four or five years later, she still suffers very severe headaches okay. and things from her time then. And it's like, how could you do this to a 16 16- year old child to punish them Mm. to treat them so cruelly in this way you know even if they'd done something wrong Mm. (laughs) let alone the fact that she had absolutely no you know she had done nothing wrong here so this yeah really affects me a lot does it seem to be easier or harder under kim jong-un to get information into north korea on balance probably harder for these reasons the fact that uh there is this crackdown on the border very strong on both sides uh so people who had been taking kind of sacks of usb Mm. sticks up to the border from china to pass them across they have um many of them have stopped doing that or have had to find other ways to do it because it's just become too difficult too risky for the people involved and well there's still people in south korea who send them over by balloons right usb sticks balloons and i went out recently and watched the bottles filled with rice and usb sticks floating down the han rail up Uh the han river to north korea we don't know how much of that gets into north korea Mm. but yeah there are still ways to get media in and there's certainly still a market for it uh, people still want to, to see this stuff so you know what we've seen over the years is that people can be very inventive and mm. entrepreneurial at getting information into North Korea and, th- and that continues From what you've heard are USBs and US and devices that can read them common? Yeah I think almost every single North Korean escapee that I've talked to ah. has, has watched some foreign media you know it's very common to have USB sticks that can be plugged either directly into the TV mm-hmm. or into a, the DVD player 
if it has a USB drive or the Notel, you know, player. So almost everybody has watched this stuff mm -hmm. and they pass, you know, USB sticks around amongst each other so everybody watches, you know, new programs all the time. So I think, yeah, this is there's a very busy trade in this. Now, what about information out of North Korea? How's that changed since you uh, first reported on it back in the mid-2000s? Is it still hard to get accurate information out of the North? Yeah, I mean, there is more and more information coming out and to like but through innovative media outlets like Rimjingang, mm. uh, Chiro Ishimaru in Osaka, who runs this amazing group of like Korean like citizen journalists who smuggle information out. And also Daily NK obviously has lots of uh, people inside North Korea who are able to feed them information. It's not a huge amount. Uh, you know, it's meaningful in itself. And I do read these websites a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, also NK News. We uh, have our own sources there. Sorry. Yes, I neglected to say NK News. Yeah, so we do have some of this, but it does seem to have gotten more and more difficult uh, to get this information out and, and riskier. The punishments for being caught for this stuff are getting more and more severe. Mm. So, yeah, it's a challenge. Actually, that's interesting, isn't it? That the punishments are getting more severe, but at the same time, Kim Jong-un was most, you know, a month ago photographed with a, a bevy of South Korean talents who were up there. So on the one hand, is it okay? Is it not okay? Is he sending mixed signals? Yeah, well, it was extraordinary. Not only did he meet with them, Red Velvet and all this stuff, but that they put it on the front page of Nodong Shimun. Yeah. That, you know, he didn't like brush it under the carpet and pretend it never happened. Right. But he, t he told the people that he'd been mm. meeting with people playing band music. So yes. it was a very interesting move, and I'm not quite sure what to make of that. Right, if you're a, an average North Korean and you were thinking, well, is it okay now to watch this on him? Yeah, I'd be careful about finding out mm. <laughs> if I was them. Uh, are there any important stories that you'd still like to write about North Korea if you could? Oh, so many. I mean, it's now been eight years in total writing about North Korea. Mm. You know, I am working on a final project now as I, you know, I'll be wrapping up in this job soon. So yeah. I've got one more kind of uh, defector-focused project. It's not, it's not huge like the last one, but I hope it will still be meaningful. You know, and I should also say, I, I've said defector repeatedly throughout our chat here, Jacko, but... Mm. Um, you know, I, I don't like to use the word defector in my writing. I don't like it as a word. I think it's very kind of negative, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so I try to say escapee or, or people who have escaped or refugee or whatever, some other way mm. to do it because, um, yeah, they're the brave people who, may, who made it out. You hinted that you're moving on from this region. Well, from this peninsula at least. I'm moving to China, not ah, so far away. Okay, not too far away. Uh, what, if anything, do you hope for the people of North Korea? And are you optimistic? I'm not optimistic that North Koreans are going to be free anytime soon. Uh, I mean, I see no signs of change, like big change. I see no signs of collapse or instability in North Korea. You know, I learned early on not to predict anything about North Korea, but it doesn't look like this regime is going anywhere now. But in terms of the summit-related process now, I do feel cautiously optimistic as they say yeah. about this because it does feel different like Kim Jong-un is acting kind of in a bold way he is tying himself to this process but also Trump Donald Trump is not your average American president he's also very impulsive mm -hmm. he, both of them love the optics yeah, the made yeah. for TV moments you know so I think the process that they have started you know I hope that it does lead to something like as I said before I'm very skeptical that it will lead to actual denuclearization yeah. but if it can lead to uh, better relations uh, you know better economy 
for North Koreans, like Mike Pompeo has been talking about, yeah. then the, this is all a move in the right direction. Well, that's probably a good note to end on. Thank you very much, Anna Fifield, for joining us today in our studio. It's been my pleasure to be here, Jacko. Thank you. Don't forget, you can listen to all our shows as well as read full bios and show notes on our website, www.nknews.org. And you can send feedback, comments, questions, or guest suggestions to podcast at nknews.org. Our podcast was produced by Arias Dare and facilitated by Chad O'Carroll and Christina Lee. Thank you and listen again next time. <laughs>